0: Yo 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 everybody it's Stretch Armstrong. And my name is Bobito Garcia aka Cool Bob Love. If you love this podcast you were listening to, you should check out our new show, What's Good with Stretch and Bobito. This is not your average interview show. We're going to be telling stories that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR 1 app, or however you find your
1: podcast.
2: It's What's Good.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of maximumfun.org and is distributed by NPR.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So it's obviously it's kind of a cliche. It's what every writer who's starting out gets told a thousand times in every class. Write what you know. Good writers sort of mix up the made up stuff with autobiography all the time. That's basically what Judd Apatow said to Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. And it's pretty much what they did. They wrote a movie about the early days of their relationship. Now they're married. They called it The Big Sick. And one more thing that they learned, when you write about your life, your friends and your family, it can be
3: kind of scary. It's scary on a couple of levels. Mm. One, you don't want to mess it up because it's your story. You get one crack at it and you want to do a good job of it. And then it's also scary because you do feel so naked and vulnerable Mm -hmm. uh, to a lot of people. And we're in this weird position now where we want more people to watch it. So we want to feel naked and vulnerable in front of the biggest audience possible. It's Bullseye.
2: Coming up, I'll talk with Kumail and Emily about how they turn the real story of their relationship into a feature film. Sometimes Kumail says you just have to kind of get that stuff out there, even if it's a little gross.
3: I just felt like for me it was like you know when there's a ketchup bottle and there's the film gunk at the top, you gotta like slam it and get it out before you can do anything else. That's how I felt this story. Was. That is not a
1: good description of this movie. Though. We are not the gunk at the top of the ketchup.
2: <laughs> then I'll talk with Terrace Martin, one of the most unique voices in music today. He's a hip hop producer, a jazz saxophonist. He's worked with Kendrick Lamar, Charlie Wilson, Snoop Dogg, YG, plenty of others. He's got a foot in both jazz and
4: hip-hop, but if you ask him, he doesn't see a difference between the two. I was taught if I just play jazz sometime and smile, maybe I'll play in the Lincoln Center Jazz Band one day and get a job and wear a suit and tie every motherf***ing day of my f***ing life. Or maybe I'll do hip-hop and get a big car and a big chain and f*** all the bad and get my family out the ghetto. It's both me trying to get stability, so what's the difference? So that's why I don't blur lines in jazz and hip-hop.
2: Finally, I've got a recommendation for you. It's both best-selling and bursting with love. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Camille Nangiani and Emily Gordon wrote one of my favorite movies of the year. It's called The Big Sick you probably heard about it. It tells the true story of how the two of them got together, how Kumail balanced his Pakistani family's traditional attitude about marriage and love with his own, how Emily figured out that Kumail was the one, and how a nearly catastrophic illness brought the two closer together. If it sounds like a romantic comedy, it kind of is, but it's also messy and sweet very honest. Kumail, who's a stand-up comic, plays himself in the movie— Emily is played by Zoe Kazan. In this scene from the beginning, the two of them meet for the first time. Kumail just finished a set on stage at a club. He goes up to Emily. He's about to give her the business for heckling him.
3: Hi.
1: Hi. Um,
2: my name's
3: Kumail. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah,
1: we saw you perform.
3: Now that the niceties are out of the way, um, I have to tell you that when you yelled at me, it really threw me off, and uh, you really shouldn't heckle comedians. It's so rude. You didn't heckle you
1: just woohooed you. is
3: supportive. Okay, that's a common misconception. Uh-huh. But yelling anything at a comedian is considered heckling. Heckling doesn't have to be negative.
1: So if I if I yelled out, like, you're amazing in bed, <laughs> that'd be a heckle?
3: Yeah, it would be an accurate heckle.
1: Cool.
2: Oh. <laughs> Kumail, Emily, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah. Nice to see you too, pals. Um, congratulations on this movie. It's a really spectacular thing. I think that one of the things that I was wondering as I was watching it was when someone says to you, You should you're talented, and I'm guessing they probably approached you, Kumil, because you're a you're a famous person of a sort. Someone came to you and said, You're talented, you should write a movie. And you said okay, I'll write it about this incredibly personal, important part of my life with a main character named Kumil Nanjiani. Yeah. Why did you do that? Why didn't you just write, like, you're a passionate movie lover. Why didn't you write... Uh, Uh, Gremlins 4.
1: Oh, he tried. That was one of his pitches.
3: (laughs) Wait, are we skipping over Gremlins 3? (laughs) Wait, I couldn't couldn't remember how many Gremlins there were. I would love to write Gremlins 3. I like the idea idea
2: that we're writing Gremlins 4, which is a sort of speculative fiction film based on what if there already was a Gremlins (laughs) 3. (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple layers
3: of abstraction.
1: When Gremlins 4 opens, the world is in ruins, so you're like, what the f***? happened in Gremlins 3? Yeah, and
3: actually Gremlins 4, there are no gremlins in it.
1: We're it's, the gremlins.
3: Yeah, it turns out we're the gremlins, and it's just about a, a couple uh, getting divorced and uh, from the perspective of their eight-year-old son. That Joe Dante's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it really turns things on their head. Um, I think it was because I knew before I think Emily wanted to, I knew that I wanted to Turn this thing that had happened to us into something, into some kind of story, I sort of started like kicking around in my head the idea, like, I think this is a pretty big, crazy thing that happened. It was very specific. Nobody else has this story. And I just felt like for me, it was like, you know, when there's a ketchup bottle and there's the gunk at the top, you got to like slam it and get it out before you can do anything else. That's how I felt this story was That is not me. a
1: good description of this movie, though. We are not the gunk at the top of the catch-up. We are not. Bottle. The movie
3: is the gunk at the no, top the of the catch No,
1: the movie isn't either.
2: I mean, both of you had revealed your lives in your own ways. I mean, Kumail, you're a stand-up comic that is, you know, it's essentially an act of self-revelation in one form or another, and you had talked about your life to some extent. Um, Emily, you were a writer and had written about your life Publicly on the mm-hmm. internet. Mm-hmm. But this is a different kind of thing. Like you are really taking a risk, even when you have full creative control, in representing your life in this way. It must yeah. have been scary.
1: I think it was a little scary. At first. It was definitely more scary for me. And then as we more people kind of came on to our team. I then started to see the the kind of beauty in separating yourself from the story that you're telling and separating your own story from this story. Because this story is our story, but it's also Michael Showalter's story. It's also Judd Apatow's story, Barry Mendel's story, Zoe Kazan's. It's all everyone who was involved in making the movie. It kind of became their story. And that, and that may sound corny, but that is actually what it is. So that helped me emotionally to kind of like, oh, this isn't just us. This has now become all of our story. We kind of become the face of it. Um, right. because it, it did originally happen to us but it's everyone's story
3: it's scary on a couple of levels mm-hmm. one, you don't want to mess it up because it's your story you get one crack at it and you want to do a good job of it and then the, it's also scary because you do feel so naked and vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, to a lot of people and we're in this weird position now where we want more people to watch it so we want to feel naked and vulnerable in front of the biggest audience possible
2: Emily, you were a therapist mm-hmm. before you were a screenwriter and producer. That's correct. Um, w- why did you quit?
1: Uh, it's a very, very taxing career. Uh, and I specifically were pick- I was picking jobs and populations to work with that were very intense because that's what I like to do as a therapist. And I just found that it was very taxing. And after the events of this movie uh, where I became very sick, I just kind of found that I – I didn't have enough resources left to focus solely as much on my clients as I should have. Um, and so I started feeling like I needed to find something else to do because I just I was burning out. Honestly, I was working with incredibly mentally, very severely mentally ill people at the time that I got sick. Uh, people with schizophrenia and all kind of a host of other things. And I remember after coming back um, from being sick, I had all these scars on myself and I kind of was very pale and I was much skinnier. And I just was kind of looked sickly. And one of my I had a couple of clients who didn't. Thought that I'd been replaced. Um, and then I had another client who was a little more kind of. Um, what do you ca- mean to
3: replace? They thought
1: I'd been. because re- well, they're very mentally ill. So they thought I'd been replaced with someone else and they didn't trust me anymore. I get that. And then one who was pretty high functioning and I was like, yeah, I was really sick. And I, you know, he was like, oh, did a vampire bite you? You look really weird. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Like, because the normal response when you're sick is for people is to be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I hope everything's okay. But these are people who are struggling mightily with themselves. And so they don't have they don't have the resources to kind of take it easy on me. And I realized, like, oh, I kind of need someone to take it easy on me right now. And I don't think I'm as effective as I used to be. So I slowly started kind of detaching myself from um, being a therapist. It's still in my heart. It's still kind of in my blood, but it was it became hard for me to see clients after a little bit.
2: When did you two start working together?
1: Was the podcast before the show?
3: Um, I think it was. Yeah, so the two things we have done before this together were the podcast, Indoor Kids, the video game podcast that we were talking about that you've been on. Yeah.
1: And the Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, which is the stand-up show that I produced that uh, Jonah Ray and Camille hosted.
2: Why did you want to get involved in all that, Emily? <laughs>
1: I started. I've always been a comedy fan. I mean, how we—that's how we met—was that I was going to comedy shows. I've loved standup forever. And when we moved to New York together, our only social life because we were broke and didn't know anybody and kind of weren't didn't have anything else to do. Um, I would work all day. I would come home, and Kumail would then need to go to work. His work was open mics, so I just started going with him to open mics, and I went to so many open mics. And I,
3: I am so sorry. I know,
1: right? But and it was kind of tragic and awful because you'd go into these like it'd be a sunny, gorgeous New York day, and then you're like, let's head into this basement for the next five hours, Um, (laughs) and that's what we would
3: do. That's such an exaggeration. It was like
1: six hours usually, Um, but (laughs) in that basement, I would I started watching comedians' jokes kind of evolve, and I kind of just fell in love with it, and I kind of um, I fell in love with the process of creating comedy and creating a good space for comedy. Uh, and I kind of started nerding out about it so i i um as soon as I got a chance to, I started producing a show in New York and then started working after I quit um doing therapy, I started working in a comedy club as like a very low-level grunt worker.
3: <laughs> well, you had a good sense, like, when you would go to comedy shows Emily would be like, hmm, this shouldn't be like this, this should be like this, the sound should be like this. It was. You always had, every comedy show we went to, you knew why it wasn't a good comedy show.
1: It's a bit like group therapy, comedy, any of that stuff. Anything where you have people together in a public space that need to, like, come together as one. They're just, it needs to feel safe, but that within that safety, anything could happen. That's true for both therapy and um, and comedy. And so I... I'd done a lot of group therapy and I kind of, not that it's like, not that comedy is like, oh, group therapy, but it is a similar thing that everyone's kind of coming together as one and needs to experience something as one.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon, the two co-wrote the movie The Big Sick. It's in theaters now. Kumail wrote the first couple of drafts of this movie.
1: Yes. He wrote the first draft.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When you read it, what did you think was
3: missing from it? Oh my god, how come nobody... Why
1: are you going to make us do this?
3: (laughs) Oh my god, Um, I've never asked you this. No,
1: you haven't. Uh, I think the first draft that I read... uh
3: Uh-huh. Oh god. Um, No, it's fine. I can be honest, right? It was
1: slightly, it was very long and slightly servicey. I'll say. And often... Wait, what does that mean? It was a little, like, it didn't dive into any kind of intense conversations. Uh, It just was like... It kind of stopped and didn't, and didn't do that. And I think uh, you have such a great sense of putting jokes into things. It was such a funny script, but often the jokes would be – it would be like three pages of like jokes and then like a half a page of like – and then they have a talk and everything's okay. So I think you were still very scared making it was, that first it was draft. the
3: first draft. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's why I feel terrible. I mean if anybody critiques the first draft and anything, it's, it's rough. It's always rough. Um, You were still working through your fear about writing it, I think, in that first draft. And so you were going to what was comfortable for you and what's comfortable for character Kumail, all the stuff informed the movie, of like, when stuff's uncomfortable, let's get some jokes in. Um, So it was a very, very funny draft, but not a very kind of deep dive.
2: That's not an uncommon thing for a comedian or a comedy person to use jokes to avoid engaging with
1: deep emotion. I had actually never heard of it before. Right. <laughs> and
3: that's what happens in the movie a lot. Yeah. You know, it's sort of that's supposed to be the character's journey is that whenever anything deep happens, he tries to make a joke and it's him learning to engage with his emotions. What parts of this were you most scared to engage with, Camille? Um, For me, the stuff with my parents was difficult, and then the stuff with Emily's illness was difficult. Those were the ones that, specifically later in the movie when Emily's illness... Um, it feels bleak. When she doesn't get better, yeah. so... And in, in the movie, uh, em, the
2: character of Emily, uh, as in real life, falls into a medically induced coma because of an unusual mystery illness and there are a few moments when we're certain that we're on the way uh, out of the coma
3: and
1: Not it so much. persists. Yeah. Yeah, nevertheless.
3: We, we, yeah. <laughs> well, what we wanted to show at that was I remember the experience of uh going through it while she was under was it really was a roller coaster. They would be like oh she's great, she's going to be up and then like a couple of hours go by they're like uh, oh, no, it's bad that it didn't happen. So it's just like it was just always up and down and up and down and there would be hope and then it'd be taken away. It was like it truly was a roller coaster. It was like peaks and valleys every single day. So that's a little bit what we wanted to show in the movie is the sense of like it's almost resolved no it's the worst it's ever been actually it's the best it's ever been no 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 it's even worse than even worse than the last time when we said it was worse it was it's the worst now so it's uh, her her condition was really um it was weird to hear of the condition fluctuating but when you look at her there seems to be no change you know and
2: that was difficult for you to deal with as a writer because of the memories that you had of the real situation.
3: Yes, so it was tough. So what happened was, so we we went through this whole thing, and then we didn't. We talked about it some, but we didn't really talk about it that much. Um, Emily, in, in real life, I, after it happened, in real life, yes. in real life, it was like, wow, that was crazy, right? But but I hadn't really gone through and sifted through that experience. Um, sort of piece by piece, I just had sort of put it in my head as like, that was crazy, and that was it. And whenever I would think about it, it was like kind of uh, paralyzing. It was scary. So the tough thing about writing this movie, one of the tough things was having to like sort of literally try and remember every single thing, every single day, and what it felt like. And actually, if you just, what it felt like wasn't hard to conjure up if you just thought of it. If I just thought of it, I would feel feel like I was back there.
2: There's a beautiful moment in the movie where you, in the movie The Big Sick, your movie,
3: uh, where
2: you, Kumail, as the character based on you, go to the gift store and buy an enormous giraffe.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I love that scene because it really was like the the feeling was you can't fix her. So you try and do other stuff. Like I remember, her parents got like new curtains for her house and put up new curtains. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that you that like her mom did laundry for her. It's like because you can't really fix the problem, so you just sort of do the best you can. And it's it's beautiful, but it's also very desperate. Like the giraffe thing, I really like because it really to me felt that's kind of how it felt like going through it where you're like i can't the problem is you can't fix you can't fix the main thing there's nothing you can do you're not a doctor you can't do it so what do you do? You just go and buy a giant stuffed giraffe. That's all you can do. I will
1: also say I did not actually receive a giant stuffed giraffe at any <laughs> point in time. But
3: you got a lot of flowers and I
2: stuff. Still, you're still holding on to that still resentment. Still a little
1: upset about the giraffe thing.
2: I want to play a scene from The Big Sick, and my guests are Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon, who co-wrote it um, based on their own life experience uh, as, a, as a now married couple, then courting as Emily went through a horrible health crisis. And uh, Emily, the character based on you is is in a coma in this scene. Um, it is like days after the two of you in the film have broken up. Kumail, you find out about the coma, and you're at the hospital trying and not sure what to do to lend a hand. And you call Emily's parents. They come. And you've never met them before, and uh, they know all of your secrets yeah. uh, because Emily has told them everything, mm-hmm. which is a great contrast to your life, Kumail, where you have not told your parents that you're dating a white girl at all. Right. And th- you and the parents, Kumail, have sit down together in the cafeteria, and, and we'll hear Ray Romano and, and Holly Hunter as, as Emily's folks.
3: How's your sandwich?
0: sandwich I ever had. Mine's good. Tuna's always a gamble. But, you know, we're not by the water but we are by the water. (laughs) But it's a lake. There's no tuna in the lake. Whatever. I I threw the dice. I got the sevens, I guess. Whatever the the good dice number is. So, uh, 9-11. I've always wanted to have a
3: conversation with about it with people you've never talked to people about 9-11 no what's your what's your stance what's my stance on 9-11 oh um anti it was a tragedy I mean we lost 19 of our best guys huh that was a joke obviously Nine eleven was a terrible tragedy. And it's not. Funny to joke about it. Mr and Mrs Gardner, please report to the Icu. <laughs> <laughs> I like that joke.
1: Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That is a real comedian's joke. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> you could hardly find a more vivid example of things that comedians say to each other and should not say to their should girlfriend's
3: not parents. Say I know. To anyone. That's exactly what it is. It's like an awkward situation. Kumail in the movie doesn't know what to do. So he just goes for <clears throat> the most awful joke possible. Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: I sometimes think that uh, you wanted to write this entire movie so you'd have an excuse to put that joke in somewhere because you can't do it on stage, that's for sure.
3: Yeah. No, I can't do that joke on stage. Um, But, um, yeah, I I, I like that scene. And I think Holly and Ray are so amazing in this movie. It's such
1: a great – we really wanted to – Holly and Ray, the characters that they play are very – not very much like my parents whatsoever. We really – Judd was kind of great about being like, okay, you had this character Kumail. We kind of know who he is. Who are the worst type of people for him to be paired with? Um, and so, you know, both of both the parents are way too – they're kind of oversharing in different ways. Uh, Holly kind of really takes him to task and doesn't let him get away with anything, whereas Ray is just kind of always kind of talking and kind of an emotional guy and also always doing bad dad jokes. And so Judd really helped us, as well as his actors, kind of take those characters and create these people that are just the absolute worst type of people for Kumail to be stuck with for days at a time. Yeah.
2: More of my interview with Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani coming up. Don't go anywhere. Still to come, only a couple of months before it came out, Kumail and Emily screened the big sick for their parents. How did it go? It was a little weird, since, you know, their parents are in the movie as fictional characters. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the AT&T original series Mr. Mercedes, based on Stephen King's best selling novel. A demented serial killer taunts a retired police detective, and now the ex-cop must bring the killer to justice before he can strike again. Mr. Mercedes premieres August 9th at 8 p.m., Eastern and Pacific, on Audience. Watch on DirecTV Channel 239 or stream on DirecTV Now. Go to att.net slash Mercedes for more information.
1: I'm Linda Holtz.
2: And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour.
1: Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. The two of them co-wrote the new movie, The Big Sick. Kumail also stars in it. It's in theaters now. Emily, Kumail's character is the protagonist of the movie, which is not all that, It's not always the case in romantic comedies. Um, Sometimes a woman is a protagonist in the movie, although sometimes she's also kind of the subject Mm -hmm. uh, uh, rather than a you know rather than having initiative.
1: Yeah.
2: How do you incorporate a woman's humanity and perspective in a movie where the lead female character? physically cannot talk for <laughs> half of the runtime of the film. How do you not make it just about dudes and how they see the world?
1: We definitely we were very very adamant, and everyone was not just me was very adamant from the beginning that it can't be a movie where um Emily goes into a coma so that Camille gets to grow up and like learn about life and love we didn't want it to be that kind of a movie, and I think um and I, I don't know why I hadn't been talking about this in press up until recently, but I used to actually do a workshop in New York about how rom-coms are ruining our romantic love lives, specifically women, uh, although I'm, I'm sure it damages men in all kinds of ways, too. But I kind of grew up watching rom-coms, and it, I started expecting that my... I was supposed to be feeling what I was seeing on screen. And what I was seeing on screen was that if a guy was interested in me, I was supposed to be interested in him because he was interested in me. And not that he was interesting or cool or fun to be around, but because he showed me interest. And even bonus, if he did some weird, like, big gesture of love, now I'm really supposed to be in love with him. And I'm, maybe I'm an idiot for taking those lessons from movies, but those are the lessons I took. And I was in a lot of, like, kind of pretty crummy relationships uh, as a result of... Men kind of acting out these gestures they've seen in movies, and me going, Sure, absolutely. And never stopping to actually get into a conversation with the person that I was dating and find out whether or not I was compatible with them. So, we really wanted to make sure that the Emily in this movie isn't just interested in Kumail because Kumail's interested in her. And that, um, you know, he did. He kind of falls in love with her. Essentially, while she's asleep and realizes his feelings for her, we'll say that's a better way to put it, while she's asleep. But that didn't have anything to do with her. He was kind of falling in love with someone who literally wasn't there. Um, And through her her parents and through his memories of her, that's all great. But she still needs to catch up to that and she needs to kind of – she needs to negotiate that too. So we were very adamant that – even more so because she's gone for so much of the movie that she, when she is present, she needs to have a voice. And her voice can't be receiving love. It needs to be negotiating that love and those relationships, too. You're
2: listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. Emily, your parents have seen the movie? They have. Kumail, have your parents seen the movie? Yes. When did you show it to them?
3: They, show, they saw it like three or four days ago, very recently.
2: So this is, we're recording this as the release of the film is like imminent. Mm-hmm. yes. I mean the wide release the the movie is screened all over. Yes.
1: Oh, okay. The big boy release for
2: some coming. time.
3: Yeah. Okay, so now it's going to be the wide wide release. Yeah. I just got very nervous. It's totally fine. I my parents saw it nervous. a
1: while ago and his parents saw it more recently. Yeah,
3: I just had my parents see it but <clears> uh, basically like 10 days before the the small release. I had my I I I had sent my brother over to be like, "Hey, watch this with them and Make sure that they don't freak out.
2: You sent your brother like
3: as a tour guide, kind of, as, as sort of a, uh, like a therapy dog
1: oh. or something. Oh yeah, that's nice. It'd be I like, like
3: it. yeah, just just go and make them make them feel okay about this because it is a lot for them to deal with.
2: Because Emily, your character, your parents in the film, are a played by two <laughs> beloved actors. Yes, Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. I mean, I'd, I would watch any movie in which Holly Hunter played me, even if it was me as a serial killer. Absolutely. Uh, and B, you have, you can offer your parents more remove than Kumail can. You can say, look, this isn't your, this isn't you. This is, this is uh, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano doing their thing <laughs> yeah. uh, and whatever serves the plot. Kumel, your parents in the film, you have less distance to offer them. As an explanation,
3: that's right,
1: it's partially right. I mean the your father in the movie is a legendary Bollywood actor, and so he kind of brings his own he brings just as much Ray Romano flavor to that part as Ray brought to my father's part, I would say Emily's father's part
3: yeah <laughs> yeah I, I but I did you know I did call my parents when we first got the film when it looked like we were going to have the film made, I did call my parents and was like, hey, we're making a movie. It's based on this stuff. Here's where it's exactly like what happened. Here's where it's like you. Here's how these characters are different from you. They have different names in the movie too um, than in real life. So, So I sort of prepped them for it and I told them every single thing, but it's still, I think, jarring to see You know, for us, it's still weird to see our lives on screen and for them to see it and have nothing to do with the making of it. I understand that that's a very strange thing. I understand that very few people have that experience and are ready for that experience. Like suddenly they saw two hours of a version of their life on screen and they had almost no hand in the creation of it.
1: We're very lucky to have very smart and very wonderful and very warm parents, all four of them.
2: Kumail and Emily, thanks so much for coming on Bullseye. Always great to see you guys. Thank
1: you.
3: You too. thank you for having us.
2: Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon are the real-life married couple who co-wrote the new movie, The Big Sick, in which Kumail stars. It's about their courtship, and particularly the part of their courtship where Emily was in a coma. Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. The Big Sick is in theaters all over now. Go see it. Kumail's stand-up album, Beta Male, still great. Pretty much all of it is hilarious. You can give that a listen. And Emily, who used to be a therapist, wrote a really great self-help book called Super You. Check that out. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Terrace Martin is a musician and producer. He was born in the Crenshaw District in Los Angeles. He started in music as a saxophonist. He played in jazz bands. He went to arts high school. He even went to band camp. He wasn't much older than 18 when he figured out that that life wasn't for him. At the same time, kids growing up around him were freestyling, playing in backyard shows and clubs. What kid wouldn't be excited about that? With those two divergent musical backgrounds— Terrace kicked off a career that would make him one of the leading polymaths in pop music. As a producer, he's worked with Snoop Dogg, Charlie Wilson, YG, Kendrick Lamar. As a solo artist, he's released about half a dozen records. Terrace channels classic artists like Sly, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, all the while landing some pretty hot features, heavy hitters, Kamasi Washington, Thundercat, Wiz Khalifa, Kendrick He's making a record with Herbie Hancock right now, but his new album out in stores is with a band called the Poly Seeds. Their debut record is called Sounds of Crenshaw Volume 1, just dropped last week. Here's a little bit of it an instrumental called Funny How Time Flies. Martin. Welcome to Bullseye. I'm I'm thrilled to have you on the show.
4: Man, thank you for having me. Thank you for having
2: me. You're really emphatic about blurring the lines in music, not creating boxes in music. Um, Do you think of yourself as a hip-hop producer or as a jazz musician?
4: I think of myself as a a few different things, but but uh, how I like to explain that is... um, I don't think of myself as any uh, as any one particular musician. Uh, my foundation is hip-hop music. After hip-hop, I discovered jazz. So those are my foundation things, and uh, those are always my point of directions for most of my influence and most of the records I do. Um, I always could find a certain energy in my point of direction, which is hip-hop or jazz. That's why I'm in my CD player right now. is anywhere from Sonny Stitt to Dexter Gordon to Too Short, to Irk the Jerk, to N.W.A., to Joni Mitchell. It is hard to define the kind of guy I am because of my foundation are made up of things that are gumbles of other things, you know. So, you know, uh, I think right now I am a musician and um, uh, I'm a producer of many things, uh, records and children. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I I appreciate, by the way, you throwing the yay in there a little bit. I know I, mean, I know hey, you're look, pandering to me, but look, I appreciate nah, nah, it nonetheless. Hey, look, you
4: know, hey, I wrote a song called Oakland on my last record. People would tell you, I would live in West Oakland if I could right now. I can't because every day I'm I'm so involved with pushing this LA thing to the next level.
2: Let's talk about the gap between hip hop and jazz music. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a legacy of people connecting hip-hop and jazz, mm-hmm. but it's mostly been by, like, inviting one jazz musician to play a solo on a hip-hop record. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's been super corny. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you see as being the things they share, and what do you see as the things that are different?
4: I think, number one, both jazz mm-hmm. And if we're just classifying these put them in these things, both jazz and hip hop both come from uh black people, and they both come some of the foundation of struggle and happiness and and uh you know just just living um We all go through a lot of the same, and all these songs are usually written from somebody's perspective or somebody's what what they went through. you know you listen to. Miles Davis in the midst, like like live at the plug nickel. And he's playing milestones and so intense. And he's Tony Williams hitting all those slick polyrhythms on the drums. Ron Carter, all that harmony. Herbie Hancock playing intense, intense. You got to understand what was going on outside while they were playing that music. Black folks were getting swarmed with water holes. beat, huh, killed everything. This is 60s. That music was a reflection. What the hell was going on outside? Hip hop, you listen to the police buying W A. That music is nothing more but another reflection from what's going outside. The difference is there's no instruments in these young black man's hands. It's microphones and turntables. When I think of corny jazz, and this is no disrespect for anybody out anybody out there getting their money in the school system, the universities that's teaching jazz. But when jazz got institutionalized, that's what made it corny. When you start having to go to a classroom and that's beautiful to learn the harmony and everything, but when you have when you have kids that's coming from all these different places, which it is, it's for everybody. But now you have a kid that he may not have went to the struggle cuz Hank Mobley did, but now he could transcribe a Hank Mobley solo and now he could be accepted for playing a Hank Mobley solo on a gig. You dig what I'm saying? That's corny to me. Sounding like somebody else is corny. So when jazz got institutionalized, the motherf***er started waking up at 8 o'clock in the morning studying this shit and breaking down this and they ain't sacrificed this shit. They ain't went through nothing, which is cool. The music is for everybody, but the art of doing it comes from something else. Period. And I'm a kid that's grew up in a jazz household and everything. So I know, you know, you, um... When you, when you grow up playing jazz, you live in hotels sometimes. Your family has no money sometimes because you're, you're playing jazz. When you grow up with a hip-hop dream, you live up growing up because sometimes your family has no money, but you have a dream in hip-hop. What's the difference? Is it drums and jazz? Is it a struggle in jazz? The drums and hip-hop? Struggle in hip-hop? It's struggle in both of these things. So how dare somebody separate these things, especially from a person that lived both angles of the and realized it's no difference. And I wish it was, because maybe I was taught if I just play jazz sometime and smile, maybe I'll play in the Lincoln Center Jazz Band one day and get a job and wear a suit and tie every motherfucking day of my life. Or maybe I'll do hip-hop and get a big car and a big chain and f*** all the bad and get my family out the ghetto It's both me trying to get stability so what's the difference so that's why i don't blur the lines in jazz and hip-hop
2: it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm in the studio with terris martin he's a musician and producer who's worked with folks ranging from herbie hancock to dj quick i, I want to play one of the first hip-hop production credits that you've got uh it's from the 213 album that's Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, and Warren G. A joystick. Yeah, it's called Joystick.
4: She said she wants to ride my joystick. She act like she want to ride my joystick. I got it locked when it comes to females. you
2: a sort of sweet tempered verse there. <laughs> was that the fir- was that the first time you
4: got your you got your name on a record? Yeah, as a producer, yes. As a producer without behind somebody else and being the secret guy, yes. And you were working with Battlecat at the time? Yeah, a lot a lot. Studying with him and lit living at his house he was teaching me a lot man he
2: he's a sort of for folks who don't know like a really legendary la g-funk producer yes yes probably underappreciated outside yes. of california
4: yes but he's um he's like uh his sound is and everything i do today you know he's you know he's like a duke ellington in my world you know i didn't give that beat to snoop i think i, I gave that beat to warren and Warren was working with Nate a whole lot, and I had just got with Nate too, so I was working with Nate a whole lot, and uh, you know, catching the bus out to his house in Woodland Hills, and they would go. We would from Woodland Hills go to um, Irvine, where Warren G Studio was, and that's a long drive, Irvine, and th- they did that. They they did joystick, and I remember Warren calling saying, "Yo, we, we we got one, you know, we're gonna use joystick for the two three record," and I was like, "What." what it was joystick. another one i did for uh warren record pyt him snoop and nate and it was three of them they did that's the one that made it but um i remember that that was a huge feel. and i was on the road with snoop when it came out i remember we was in wichita kansas were you it, playing with his band i was playing with his band and we was in wichita kansas and i remember going to the cd store and spending all my per diem on like five of the cds and just look <laughs> just kept looking at him like Wow, I, how did I get from here to a CD, you know? That was a that was a that was big for me cuz I was like people oh know me, they said my name on the radio. I remember that felt more just saying my name felt I felt so appreciated, you know. I felt like 20 something years at that point was, was struggle was over like and it was. That was a monumental time. That was like I'm a producer. I'm a producer and I have a credit. I I I could do this. I could do this, you know.
2: L.A. has this musical tradition. I mean, you're about the same age I am. Mm -hmm. When you were a kid, it was the blossoming of L.A. hip-hop. Like, Mm -hmm. you lived in the heart of that. Like, when you were a kid was when it started. When you were a teenager was when it blossomed.
4: Mm -hmm. I came up at a time when it was only me. (laughs) It was... It it wasn't... I I didn't have any peers in L.A. doing what I was doing. So, sometimes it looked strange when I had a horn or something like that. So I had to put it up a little bit. I had to mask the horn because I was around environments that would see a saxophone and automatically think, well, what would they think? What would they think? What's the world we keep flying? Jazz, right? Yeah. You know, so... Or maybe even corny. Or, 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 or maybe even corny, yes. I gotta take him on the road and just do these on the road. Maybe even corny. So the horn in hip-hop at a time when I was coming up, it just wouldn't look cool and looking cool is how you stayed around looking cool who had the most beautiful woman who had the new jordans who had on the issey miyaki cologne our curve for all my players out there the saxophone thing was accepted more in the Lamert park area because that was the jazz area i like and uh it was a few cats that dug it but when i went to go You know, because, I mean, I got my name around L.A. for carrying around a drum machine before it was internet. It was like a jam session. Like, I had to carry around a drum machine or go to somebody's neighborhood that had a studio and do beats in front of everybody on the spot and let them know Terrace Martin ain't around from the west side with my drum sounds that Battle Cat gave me. And I sampled all my old DJ Quick drum sounds. I'm coming to your neighborhood, blood, crip, essay, whatever, I'm banging out this beat and I'm going to build my reputation around LA.
2: What kind of drum machine were you traveling with?
4: What? MPC 3000. <laughs> what with fully blown memory and internal zip drive by Bruce Forak. You know what I'm saying? Right. If anything cracked off with the horn and where I was trying to go get my rep on for my music, I wasn't gangbanging. I didn't grow up doing music in a conservatory. I didn't grow up. I, all my friends didn't do music. All my friends gangbanged. So my thing was making them move, so I couldn't have my horn with him because we may have to run.
2: More of my conversation with Taris Martin after a quick break. Coming up, it turns out that Taris Googled our show before he agreed to come on it. And I guess he liked what he found. I mean, he came. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to twenty20.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Taris Martin in just a minute. But before, hey, check out our other show, Pop Rocket. Pop Rocket is a little bit like Bullseye, covers some of the same territory, but in a very different way. It's a panel conversation, a group of brilliant and hilarious pop culture experts who talk about what's going on in the world of pop culture. Our host is Guy Branham. He's a stand up comic. He also hosts Talk Show, The Game Show on True TV. And he's with me now. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week we're going to tackle a really heavy topic, weight, or more accurately, fat and fat people,
4: and how we in pop culture talk about fat people.
2: Can't wait to hear it, guy. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you enjoyed our conversation with Kumail and Emily, last week's Pop Rocket was all about the big sick. So, listen into to that. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Terrace Martin. He's a veteran musician. He's also an experienced producer. His newest project, The Polyseeds, just dropped their debut album. I want to play a record that you produced, I guess, now last year for YG. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a big single from his last record called Twist My Finger. Cool.
4: my my I my 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 I'll
2: tell you what, Terrace that rattles the door panels in my car. Well,
4: thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's a heavy record. I mean that has that feels like it could have been produced by Battlecat mm-hmm. that's that same heavy electronic funk sound mm-hmm. well, I mean, I think that in the last couple of years, you've spent a lot of your time working with two of l a s greatest rappers mm-hmm. you're you've worked a bunch with Kendrick Lamar, you're frankly one of the greatest rappers of all time, but a guy who is you know what we used to call super lyrical right and YG, who is the plainest rapper... I mean, I've been listening to the YG's record over and over and over and over. I mm-hmm. really love it. And one of the things that's amazing about it is how how plain and simple his lyrics are and how powerful mm-hmm. they are from that simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not simplicity as a put-down, you know, relative mm-hmm. to... Not because he's incapable of complexity, but because he is choosing a kind of clear, defined power. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're talking about Kendrick, who made, you know, Into Pimple Butterfly, which you worked on extensively, Mm -hmm. one of the most sort of dense and complex hip-hop records, of the successful hip-hop records since Public Enemy, aesthetically, like a really, you know, a richly intertwined record, a record where there's so many sounds and so many things going on. And those are, those are such distant poles, but they come together specifically, in what I hear from you, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That, like, this isn't, both of these are an L.A. thing. Like, these are about this
4: place and people from this place. Mm-hmm. If you think about history in L.A., most artists, the real bad mother******, come from Watts and Compton. You know, from Charles Mingus to Eric Dolphy and on, you know, to... Charles, right. Yeah, Charles. I mean, you know, it, it goes on and goes on. So Compton's one of the last seasons in L.A. where a lot of people over there leave their doors open still. Now, the news will tell you some other s***, <laughs> and it goes down. But is one of the only places I've been that I felt more safer. You know, my dear, dear friend Chachi, uh problem. He's from, he's from an area in Compton the west side of Compton by a high school by Centennial High where him and Kendrick went to school together and everything. So he's from an area of Compton that maybe on the news and everything is crazy, and it has been some, a lot of crazy where he's from. But every time I went over there, it was so much love. Even with the most aggressive guys living across the street that you may have heard about doing the craziest dirt, everybody's doors was open. They was walking back and forth in each other's homes, feeding each other and talking to each other. No matter where you was from, if you came to Problem House on that block, you were warmed and welcome. We come from a different side. We come from the Crenshaw District. Me, my friend, Big D, we all spend time at Problem House. So it's a warm thing in Compton. Fast forward that, me knowing the history, me always having a place in my heart for the city of Compton when I had a time to work when 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 the opportunity presented itself for me to even start working with Kendrick at such a young age before anything it was my duty to work for a Compton artist I have to you know so working with Kendrick from that angle I understand Kendrick's angle why because I love jazz another thing I know the history of Compton some of the most intelligent children come out of Compton California all my friends graduated. Even the ruthless ones graduated, you know. Smart people, two-parent households, everything. Just dealt with a different circumstance and and a different hand in life at a different time and had to make different choices. But intelligent, integrity, family values is comped in California.
2: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Terrace Martin. He's a musician and producer. He's got credits on a bunch of hip-hop and jazz records, including Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. I want to play a song from Tupimba Butterfly that I, I love. Uh, another one that definitely rattles the station wagon. Um, and it's one that you worked on called King Kunta. Oh, wow.
0: I got a bone up here. I don't want you, monkey mouth. I'm sitting in my throne again. Hey, hey, you was headed back to the hood. I'm mad. He mad. But I ain't stressing. True friends. One question. Where, where, you and I was walking. Now I run the game, got the whole world talking. King Kooten, everybody wanna cut the legs off him. Kooten, black man taking no loss. Oh yeah. Where, where, you and I was walking. Now I run a game, got the whole world talking. King Kooten, everybody wanna cut the
4: legs off him. When you got the yams. What's Cat is playing bass on that, how Battlecat and DJ Cook would play bass on the keyboard. That's L.A., the musician is copying the producer. You have a new group called the
2: Polyseeds. yeah, they are you know the core elements of this group are some of the best jazz musicians you know, yes, it's not a straight jazz record oh. um what did you want to make? Why did you want to make this because you you know you came out with a solo record
4: uh year and a half ago two years mm-hmm. ago. What's different about this The difference with this record is. A, hey, it's not a Terrace Martin solo record. It's a collective record of a group of artists together that had an individual look and an individual, when I mean look, I should say individual outlook. They all look at life different. And an individual sound that I could recognize without saying you sound like this person or that person. And put a group together, bad mother, put them in a the studio and cut a mic on and have some good alkaline water some great medical cannabis because my back hurts, um, and good vibes and good people. And, and I wanted to assemble some that not only represented great music but also represent the world, which is just really people say it. I can't say it enough, but peace is a big thing. Peace is a big thing for all over the world and for neighborhoods around the world as well, especially places like Chicago. So I wanted to do a project with these kind of people that understood the struggle. And also understood that we have to try to put a Band-Aid on this thing, on this thing called hate, on this thing called, you know, stress. Only way I do that is to make people dance and just forget about that moment, you know. And I assembled the right team of musicians and producers, Trevor Lawrence, Brandon Eugene Owens, Robert Spud C. Wright, uh, Robert Glasper, you know, me, myself, and uh, the vocalists and the writers on here really will stand out to me. Like you have uh, Rose Gold from Baltimore. She's also on Velvet Portraits. She travels with me um, and writes amazing. You have Wayan Vaughn, which is my writing partner since my career started, which is uh, her mother's Wanda Vaughn of the Emotions. Her father's Wayne Vaughn, wrote Let's Groove and all these great songs. And and she's a teacher to teach kids, so she has a different mindset when she writes. And then you have Chachi. Chachi, which is which which is an artist, also goes by the name of Problem. Ch- Chachi on here showcasing this songwriting, vocal production, and, and everything else, and uh, we have a new song called Intentions out that we just shot the short film for. I'm excited for everybody to see it.
2: It seems like you're very deeply invested in this musical community in L. A. Like that's the thing that mm-hmm. you know when you hear about somebody coming out of L. A. You always hear, oh, you know, and they've been working with Terrace Martin, and mm-hmm. they're part of that whole Terrace Martin thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that you're you've gotten to the point in your career where you can be a leader in tying these people together, whether they're coming from
4: jazz or hip-hop or yeah. R&B or anywhere else. Yes. That's the goal. And and doing interviews like this really, like, um, and I'm not, I don't give a f- about two nobody's horn. This is how I feel about this interview right here particularly. I did my research, and these interviews really matter. I don't, I don't do a lot of these, because I don't want a lot of these out because these are the times where I could really be. Usually when I get called by someone like this, I know that the person about to interview me. Let me look them up because I know they on some other shit. This ain't no bullshit. They're going to ask the real question. They're going to know what color draws my mama got on. Let me act, let me get my right. These interviews help me get my message to everybody because in the hood, we know what's up in the hood. These interviews help me and my community gang allies for help. They help rather be schools that need instruments or people that just need a word or I just want to bring awareness to different things. That's why I only do a few things. And these are every time I do these things, they stretch to somebody that I needed to stretch to, you know, thank you, man. I, you know, I I love doing these and um, everybody else. We love everybody else. But the word is this. If you see a musician on the street playing an instrument, if you don't have nothing to give them, just tell them thank you. Thank you goes a long way. If it's a live show in your your city, just go see the live musicians. If it's any good record that you want to sing and that you want to go and that you want to feel good about, sing that mother. I asked YG. I said, man, you be going hard when I first started working with him. He said, T, I go hard because people get up going to work every morning. Can't go hard. They can't say, my mother boss. I hate my boss. My boss is my his wife. Everything about my mother boss. You can't say that. YG can. You can drive, get it out, and go on your job and feed your mother family. That's a real artist. A real artist's job is to be the voice that somebody can't be in my world. So anybody supporting that, I'm with. And thank you again for your time.
2: Terrace Martin, thank
4: you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Man, thank you so much. I I appreciate it, too.
2: Terrace Martin. His new group, The Polyseeds, just released their first ever album. It's called The Sounds of Crenshaw Volume 1. It's available to buy and stream now. Let's take a listen to another track from the record. This one's called Intentions. Every week on Bullseye, we like to wrap things up with a pop culture recommendation from me. It's The Outshot. I bought it in paperback from a thrift store. The cover's gold with that big, fat, loopy 70s typeface for all the titles. There's a giant billboard at the top. It says, a bestseller, bursting with love. The illustration underneath is a veterinarian rolling up his sleeves and a bunch of farm animals. Sort of like the poster for cannonball run or something, if instead of Burt Reynolds, there was a veterinarian, and instead of Roger Moore, there was a pig. It's all a little corny, embarrassing. I mean, seriously, a bestseller bursting with love. But I have to admit this to you, I loved All Creatures Great and Small. If you don't know All Creatures Great and Small, it's the memoir of a country veterinarian, named James Harriet, He was Scottish, but he worked in the Yorkshire Dales in northern England. This was in the 30s, between the wars. All Creatures Great and Small is gentle, it's funny, and it does, in actual truth, burst with love. There's a BBC TV show, too, from the 80s. It's no less wonderful.
0: I'll get some made up for you. Good, lad. I like an open mind. But that back of yours, Mr. Biggerskill what about it? Well, you've had lumbago ever since I've known you. a slight longer. i have just thought of something? I think I know what might cure it. nay. Yeah. you know how to put me right? well I think so. nothing to do with medicine. you will have to stop milking. stop milking? Look, don't you see mr. Pinskill? it's sitting on the crouch on that low stool night and morning every day of the week that's doing it. look you're a big chap. you have to bend to get down there. I'm sure it's bad for you. you really think that could be it? yes I do. it's worth a try anyway. Couldn't Olive do the milking? All of it. There's only ten cows, Dad. Of course I can. I like milking, you know I do. And it's time you give it a rest. Dang it, young man, I believe you're right. I'll pack it in now.
2: Harriet scoots around the Dales in an old car with no brakes, and every chapter is a different visit, a different farm, a different animal, a different problem. But... Most importantly, a different farmer and a different family. Harriet breezes through the medical procedures, sort of like it was the most normal thing in the world to strip to your waist in a shed and stick your whole arm up a cow. But he lingers on the people. All Creatures Great and Small has a primary cast. Harriet, his sweet blowhard boss, his boss's lazy brother, eventually a love interest, but the reserved flinty farmers of the Dales are the stars. In a few pages or a couple of minutes on screen in the TV show, they come to life. Harriet himself is gregarious. At the very least, he is in print and on TV. And the farmers are very much the opposite. It's the way of the Dales. They're unconvinced. They know better. He has to win them over. But Harriet, he does the work. Eventually, the side-eyes turn into you know, a, a little parcel of scones or a few fresh eggs on the passenger seat of his car. And then he's off to the next
0: farm. Hello, I came as quickly as I could. I'm sorry for your trouble, Mr. I well, It's not too late. I'm afraid so. It were very sudden. I don't think he suffered. Oh, poor little prince. Well, how's Miss Stamps? I'm sure she'd like to see you. Well, yes, of course. You go on through. Thank you. Hello? Mrs. Broadwith told me. I'm so awfully sorry. I think he had a good life, Mr. Daly. Yes, of course he did. He was 15, Miss Stamps. What is more, he was loved and well cared for. Yes, that's true. <laughs> It'll be my turn next. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, Prince went this morning. I'm going to be next. I just know it. That's nonsense. You're just feeling down, that's all. Lots of people do when things like this happen. Oh, I'm not afraid. I know there's something much better waiting for me. I've never had any doubts. Only one fear. It's my cats and dogs, Mr. Elliot. I'm afraid I might never see them when I'm gone. So oh, you see, I know I'll be reunited with my parents and with my brothers, but And why not with your animals? Oh, that's just it. You say animals have no souls. Who says? I've read it. And I know a lot of religious people who believe it. Well, I don't believe it, Miss Stubbs. If having a soul means being able to feel love and gratitude and loyalty, then a lot of animals are better off than humans. You've got nothing to worry about there. I hope you're right. I know I'm right.
2: There are plenty of heartwarming stories in all creatures, great and small. Lambing season is pretty great. There are a few swift kicks from horses and cows. There's genuine sadness, death, hunger. Harriet looks down the barrel of death and poverty without breaking his tone. What could end up being sentimental or schmaltzy is instead respectful and almost beautiful. All Creatures Great and Small is a story that unfolds gently over time. He earns the farmer's trust. He meets a girl. They get married. He makes partner in the firm. And in between each of those big moments, he drives that rickety old car from farm to farm and he gives his patients care. It's a simple story from that point between modernity and something much older. It slows you down. And it suggests some very simple ideas, that we take on each challenge with care and an open heart, that we leave the tragedies behind us, that we show gratitude for each other, invite someone in for some tea, leave a few fresh scones on the passenger seat. I mean, I guess you could say it's bursting with love. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We had two swimmers in the lake this week. It is a gross lake that you should not swim in. One of them jumped in fully clothed, then climbed out and rolled away in a wheelchair. So we do not know what was going on there. But it was amazing. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Cara Hart and Nick Liao. We're hiring a new production fellow here at Maximum Fund. So if you're in Los Angeles and you're looking for a gig where you can learn about making media, go to MaximumFun.org fellowship. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music given to us by DJW, Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go team. They and their label Memphis Industries provided that to us. Thank you to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free at our website, maximumfun.org, and on our YouTube page. And while you're tooling around the internet, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews, we're giving you sneak previews of upcoming Bullseye guests. We're sharing stuff we saw on the internet. Just this past week, uh, Nick was nice enough to share there an oral history of that one episode of The Simpsons with the musical version of Planet of the Apes. The one where they say, I hate every ape I see from Chimpan A to chimpanzee. Um, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.